0: AC and efforts. there were hopes at one point or another in life, but more specifically this week about putting out a new podcast. I have several in the backlog, which I imagine is very frustrating to the authors who came on in November, but there's just been no time to produce them. I almost didn't have enough time to re-up this show in paperback with and Fader, and I was like, should I just let it slide? Well, maybe next week there'll be a new one. I wish I could tell you. When I do, I have a new review to read from a kind listener from Apple Podcasts, but I like to do those on new episodes. And I'll give you an update on the book That Won't Die. This episode originally aired on December 10th, 2021, as episode 291. I give some of Mirren's details in the... Old intro, I left in the parting shot because it's kind of an evergreeny kind of thing. I appreciate your patience regarding the lack of new interviews, but that's where we're at. I can feel publicists metaphorically shanking me with an ice pick for not booking their writers. I have no energy to read right now, but that'll change in time. I promise you it will. The now and paperbacks have been popular, I think, so i I'm just gonna. I'm just going to lean into that, and I'm glad people enjoy them. Uh, so that's that's going to do it right now, seeing efforts. But let's just do my little requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Uh, Athletic Light is awful tasty. If you visit athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. I just get like little points so I can like, get discounts on like beer and stuff. That's it all right that is all I get for doing this little shout out they are not an official sponsor of the podcast so I always like to be upfront about that if you're looking for something that's tasty and you want to skip the hangover check it out skip it man skip it
1: I love a good bread bread breadcrumb but I think um (laughs) I think does anybody else call them that except for me I don't know
0: Oh, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? Well, man, where to begin? Where to start? Listen, every podcast is special in its own way, but some people bring a little extra sizzle to the party. It's a combination of charm, insights, quotability, and above all, that certain measure of playing ball. Basically, you can tell when people are having fun, and maybe you're getting a chance to jam in a way that they don't ordinarily get to jam. Enter Mirin Fader. Mirin is a staff writer for The Ringer. She's written extensively for Bleacher Report magazine as well. Uh, she had two pieces from BR Mag earn a notable selection for the debut of Year's Best Sports Writing, the collection formerly known as Best American Sports Writing. One of those pieces is the feature she wrote about Tyler Skaggs, a former Angels pitcher who passed away from a drug overdose. And we dig into the bones of how she reported and wrote that piece. It's what Tyler Skaggs left behind. You can find it at Bleacher Report. She's also the author of Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an MVP. The book was at the printers, essentially, when the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA title. So that she got some serious kind of juice out of that. And the book was on the New York Times bestseller list for a bit. I mean, geez, great stuff. I remember when Rachel Alexandra won horse of the year. In, uh this would have been January 2010 after her improbable uh, 2009 run. And I was thinking, oh, my God, who isn't going to want to publish a book about horse racing now? OK, so Giannis and Rachel, totally apples to apples. Am I right? Anyway, her Giannis book, great book. And we get into how she wrote it the style in which she wrote it, the chapter headings. That's all one-word, chapter headings, and that's a that's a funny little aside that I get into. In the show, great stuff. We don't talk about ball at all. So if you're a basketball junkie, uh, don't forget your gift bag on the way out. I'm, you're probably going to want to leave at this point. But if you're a writer, a journalist, and especially a sports writer, hang tight, because this is the podcast for you. If you ever to... Hold on. I'm going to sip my red can light lager from Hot Valley, one of my favorite breweries in town, in just a second cuz apparently I can't get the words out of my freaking mouth. Please uh please wait. Oh, oh yes. That's much better. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey hey, you'll find show notes and your ability to sign up for my up to 11 monthly newsletter, uh, book recommendations, book raffles, and it's just a list of cool things that I think will add some value and entertainment to your life. Whether you be a writer of memoir, essay, sports, you name it. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Patreon is how we subsidize this enterprise by and large and keep the lights on here at CNF Pod HQ. It's free, as you know, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. It's how we pay writers for their work in the audio magazine. Uh, Members get to ask questions of guests, and I give you credit for that. Uh, There are transcripts and coaching, and the knowledge that you're helping this community. Okay, Mirren Fader is here, and she's bringing the heat, man. So strap in, CNFers. Here we go. Just as a, as a weird and kind of wonky jumping off point, like of, of, all, of all things to start talking about is uh, I, I'm, today and today alone, I, I'm, I'm trying not to touch social media at, at all, and it's really hard. It's just the thing that always nags at the back of my brain. I hate social media by and large, and I try to avoid it, but I'm always pulled into its vortex, and I wonder what your relationship is to social media and how you navigate it as someone in the media and as someone who just wants to get good work done.
1: Yeah, I'm very different with social media than I would say a lot of my peers. I still don't have an Instagram. um, So I just have my Twitter. But I think the internet is going to be a part of our lives forever. There's no opting out. But there is a healthy way to choose how to be on it. And I choose to not be a scroller or somebody that's on there for, you know, opinions or takes I really just you know, share some piece of writing advice that I found or some really interesting feature like once a day and and that's it. Like, I don't, I don't spend my time on social media like that. I feel like I, I just don't feel good when I'm on there, you know, so it's, it's not worth it to me.
0: Absolutely. and it's great when you can con- contribute to the ecosystem in a positive way like you know you'll retweet a story something that's inspiring good writing advice you know and then of course you'll pop in a story of, of your own that you're working on right. it, I, I feel like you have a really from what I've seen and uh from from your offerings it it seems like it's a it's a net positive for anyone following but it also doesn't detract from what you're trying to do as a as a reporter and a writer
1: oh yeah no way and I think what it is good for is networking. And I, you know, I met my mentor on Twitter and then we met in real life. And, you know, a lot of times I just reach out to sources on Twitter. So I think for me, it's, I've just decided, you know, my platform is going to be positive and my, the focus is the work. Like I always say, you know, your portfolio should be your writing, not your personality or your. Twitter voice. It's it's like the body of work is, is what matters. That's what got you here. It's what's going to keep you here, hopefully, if you're lucky enough. And um, so that's my focus.
0: Yeah. And the body of work as, as resume to me is so much, it's so, so important because some people think, you know, the resume or where you go to school matters. And I guess to an extent, it might. But over, I'm sure you've had this experience just over the years. It's the features you write that, you pitch to editors and show editors it's not like oh where did where did you go to college it's like no show me that you can do the work
1: <laughs> exactly oh my gosh i feel so passionately about this like our best writers do not come from the top journalism school. Sure. They, they have produced wonderful writers, but you know, I, I went to Occidental college. It's a D3 school. We don't have a journalism major. I learned by doing, you know, you learn how to um, be concise with your words. When you're out reporting every day, you learn how to be calm under pressure when you have deadlines every week. And no matter where you go to school, nothing can substitute the best teacher alive, which is doing the work. So yeah, I actually, I love talking to students that don't come from traditional journalism schools. I I just, there's so many other ways to tell a good story that doesn't come from shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: And what would you identify as early growing pains for you as a, as a reporter and, and a writer?
1: Yeah, well, I think just not moving up. I mean, coming from Occidental College, you know, a school people didn't know about and also being a woman sports writer at it wasn't like there were many of us, you know? So I started at the Orange County Register and I was, I mean, there's the bottom of the totem pole and then there was me. Um, I was doing <laughs> everything that nobody wanted to do. Little league baseball. Uh, I did a story on four-year-old baseball. I did a story on fundraisers, uh, junior colleges, high schools, you know? So I think the the challenge was I just felt like I wasn't moving up and it was really hard. You know, that was 2013, to 2017, you know, it was a really brutal time to be at a newspaper. And I just wanted so badly to be moving up and writing long form features for a magazine. It just, it wasn't happening. And I think the other hard thing was, um, you know, getting laid off from that job and becoming a full time freelancer. So I was half Bleacher Report, half ESPN, but I just could not land a staff job. And so, you know, that was a really hard period of time for me.
0: How did you get your foot in the door at at BR and ESPN to generate the the momentum of that flywheel?
1: Yeah, it was super interesting. I had pitched a story when I was at the OC register. They said I was allowed to freelance if it doesn't involve Orange County. So I had pitched a story to Grantland um, RIP and (laughs) they (laughs) turned it down.
0: (laughs) Allow me just to cut in real quick. Mirren saying Grantland R.I.P. Can I just say how many people, when they recall Grantland, they just say R.I.P.? Mary Pilon, now Mirren. I swear there was somebody else in there. It might have been Claire McNear. It might have been somebody else in the run of the podcast. I just, it kills me and cracks me up that everyone just still laments the loss of Grantland. Even though The Ringer is kind of like Grantland 2.0, there was something about Grantland that elicits the RIP thing. So anyway, we're going to we'll go right back to Marin. I just needed to cut in and say that.
1: But they said... Here's an editor at ESPN's email. Try them, which is so nice. Um, and so I did that, and that ESPN person turned it down too. But then I had this magical email address, you know. So I just kept pitching and pitching, and all of a sudden, one article turned into three, and then it turned into like a three-year relationship freelancing for them. Um, but again, I wasn't landing that staff job. And then BR Mag, they started, they started BR Mag when I was in my, I think my third year at the OC Register, and. editors found me i don't know how and they were like you know we think you have potential and they came to la and they interviewed me and they sent me on a trial run to philadelphia to profile monet davis the little league phenom um, who was starting to play basketball and i did the story and it was so fun but i still didn't get hired so again i had this relationship and i just kept freelancing for them but it just wasn't it wasn't happening in the way i wanted to and then when i lost my job um, at the OC Register, Bleacher Report predominantly gave me a lot of work, and they said, "Do you want to go to Lithuania? You can profile a mellow ball." Wow! <laughs> <laughs> that just yeah, that just that just changed my life. I was a freelancer, and I just left for a month, and I came back, and I finally got the job. So that's how that happened.
0: And when you had that that ESPN editor's address, and you you had that thing, and you were like pitching, pitching, pitching. Uh, what part of you was? was comfortable always knocking on that door, however frequently that was, uh, even in the event, in the, in the very likely event that things would, would say no. Like uh, how did you get over the resistance of constantly pitching and not feeling like you were maybe annoying the person and and turning them off?
1: I'm sure I was annoying them, Um, (laughs) but I, (laughs) I I call it professionally stalking. Uh, It's, you know, it's diplomatic and you got to be a little pushy, but No, I just think, you know, I was so determined and I wanted this so badly and it was really discouraging. You know, it was not easy. It was painful. I felt like I wasn't ever going to break through, but it wasn't going to happen unless I kept at it, you know? And so I think it's just that stubborn persistence, like, okay, if you turn down three of my pitches, I got three more coming tomorrow. And I think that's what got me through was like just focusing on the work and, you know, letting myself feel discouraged, but not to the point where it stopped me from trying.
0: Yeah. Perseverance is so key in this line of work. And, and you're given that you're a sports writer and I always lean on sports analogies on the show. Anyway, it's a, you know, batting average is something that we see in baseball and we know that 70% failure rate is actually incredibly successful. You're a hall of famer in pitching and freelancing journalism. We don't see the batting average. So when we get bombarded with rejections, we just don't know relative to the rest of the field, like what's good and what's bad. So we often get beaten down by constant rejection without knowing that, oh, yeah, maybe 10 or 20 percent of the time get landing, landing a pitch is actually like a really good Hall of Fame batting average.
2: (laughs) Oh, totally. People really
1: don't realize it. And not even just the ones that you get turned down, but the ones that you report you know midway through and then it breaks down for whatever reason and all that work and, and that story's lost um like we could write a book you and i on the lost stories or the rejected pitches or you know that the whole thing is about failure like that's what i think people don't realize the whole this whole thing is about failure you know people are going to reject your ideas or they accept it but the idea doesn't work out or you're sitting there you're writing it's not working i mean you know, this is a very constant thing that you're dealing with all the time, which is why it's really hard. And a lot of people are like, I'm just going to go into TV. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and so re- regarding the Tyler Skaggs piece, who's uh, he was a left handed pitcher for the Angels who passed away from uh, opioid overdose and alcohol and it is an accidental death. But who, who, no one really knows at, at this point. When you're thinking about writing this story, maybe take us to uh, the pitch as as kind of a chicken egg question, like pitching the sources versus pitching your editors on the piece. Maybe you can take whatever pitch came first. Maybe you can take us to that one and how you started to get the ball rolling on that story.
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I did was talk to my editor about it. I said, because it had been a couple months, like I you know, was not going to pitch this immediately after this person's death, you know, and there were a lot of sensational, you know, pieces out there. And I, the pitch that I had to my editor was, I just feel like I don't know who this person was. And it's very sad to me that the only things I see about him is his life condensed into a headline, you know, Tyler Skaggs dies at age whatever of an overdose and you know I just think it just strips somebody of their humanity and I wanted to know more who he was so I think with the pitch you want to like what is some question that you're trying to find out and my question wasn't how did he die it was who was he when he was alive and I think that is how I framed the pitch and so you know of course they were interested in it but a pitch is only as good as what you can make it. Right. So I had to go reach out to the family and it was like eight, nine months of reaching out both to the uh, family members and, you know, the school that the mom worked at and the lawyer that was handling. Cause what made this really difficult is there was an investigation happening and, um, the lawyer was like, you know, I don't think anybody's going to talk until that's resolved. And but, you know, it's squeaky wheel. It's it's kind of like what we we're talking about, about being annoying. But in this case, more like way more respectful, annoying, you know, I'm just checking in every couple of months, you know, nothing crazy. Yeah. So that's how that happened. And then finally, um, after nearly a year of, of reaching out, the the mom and the fiance finally said yes.
0: What was the the tenor and the nature of those of those pitches to uh, uh lobbying uh what was it deborah and um oh I'm blanking on the fiance's name oh, his oh, wife's gosh, name so am I, it begins so with a c i'll I'll pop in with an aside and uh and just say her name but it's um okay went back did a little research the name of Tyler's fiance is Carly Carly Skaggs okay back to miran. Yeah, it's like, what what was the tenor of those and in, in the in the patience that you had to want to tell the story and pursue it for eight or nine months?
1: Yeah, just, you know, deeply thoughtful, um, you know, imagining that I was on the other end of the email and receiving this from some random reporter, you know, how would I want to be greeted and basically being really honest, not not beating around, you know, and just saying like, this is why I want to do this. I really care about who he was and I want to share that. And I am not here to write a sensationalized story. I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to make your life worse or cause more pain. And, and it, and it also was like, you know, I've done a lot of sensitive stories before. Here are some examples. I think empathy is my strongest trait as a reporter and I would bring a lot of empathy to this piece. So that was kind of how I reached out to them.
0: And as you, you know, greet them and start speaking with them and, inter- and interviewing them, uh, you know, what was the, the reporting process for you and maybe even tools at your disposal, whether you're a voice recorder person or just a classic notebook and pen person? Like, you know, how were you going about curating that information, you know, from, well, not curating, but uh, gathering the information from from them?
1: Yeah, it was really nerve wracking because number one, the subject matter, but number two, it was my first in person interview since uh, the pandemic. So that oh, was wow. last <laughs> August 2020. Yeah. So we were all masked up and everybody was nervous about that. And, you know, because I went to their home. And so I think it was just, you know, a lot of just overall nervousness. So I had my recorder and I also had my pen pad, you know, just, I, I don't know. It was just, I'm there to listen, but it's also, I have to ask some really tough questions too. And so it's yeah. kind of a, a really tough balance, you know, and his Beyonce started crying even before the interview started. So it was just, I knew this was going to be probably one of the hardest interviews of my life.
0: Not that you ever really get comfortable asking, you know, kind of probing questions, but you know, when you're dealing with this kind of interviewing, you know, you have to, you have to be very delicate with how you frame questions because you still want to build character and build scenes, but it's about, you know, dealing with their grief at the same time. So, you know, how, how, did, how have you navigated that?
1: You know, I think it's about understanding that you don't have a right to somebody's trauma and that, you know, feature writing, nonfiction writing is about getting this really strange intimacy with a stranger that you would probably never get with any other human that quickly And you can't be so quick to, to ask these really delicate questions. You have to get to know people and get trust. And, and that comes from asking questions from a place of empathy, you know, and I, we didn't really even talk about drugs or the overdose until like a couple hours in, you know, it, it really was like, who was he? And I think I think they felt more comfortable because they could tell I was there. I was really there for the right reasons. I really, truly did want to know what I was asking. It wasn't like I was there to write a salacious article. So I think that the empathy is a big thing and being a good listener, you know, it's not always about you asking questions. It's about you listening and what do they look like? How are they talking? You know, there's a scene in the piece about a teddy bear. And, you know, the teddy bear thing only came about because I saw the fiance like holding it. And I thought that was a little, you know, I mean, she's a grown adult and there's a teddy bear and you got to ask, what's that? You know, and then that leads to really deep things like, yeah, Tyler's voicemails are on here. You know, so I think that is also an example of there is no substitute for in-person reporting.
0: Yeah. And getting to your point about being a really good Listener, I I think maybe when we when we see TV or radio personalities, it never feels like they're listening because the the reporter or the whoever it, it tends to try to be as big a, a presence as the person they're extracting information from, which is as you know sort of the exact opposite of what you want to do if you're reporting on these kind of stories. So when you're when you're in these conversations, how, how much of you is pretty much, you know, asking a question as quickly as you can, and then just really sitting back and just, you know, nodding and just letting them talk.
1: I mean, I think it depends on how open the subject is, but a lot of it is me. When I interject, I ask for detail, like, you know, cause I'm trying to paint the scene you know and it's it's you've got to get those details in there and when somebody says they're sad that's just you know what does that mean how how sad how does that manifest you know so I think the questions I interject with are more so to draw out anecdote because people don't naturally speak in anecdotes but as far as like how that manifests in writing it's I'm not I don't like being in the story it's not about me I'm old school like the journalist is not the main character. And I think a lot of people, you know, the I, I've only done it twice because my editor made me for the international stories. It just made sense for those, the two Lamello Ball stories. But for the most part, like, you're never going to see me. And I think these days, a lot of journalists want it to, to be about them. And, you know, we're in the elevator and we're doing this. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not important. You know, Tyler Skaggs is the important one
0: and when you're when you're doing your your reporting, you're sitting there for, uh, oftentimes for several hours. Uh, f- for people who think that you just get all the information in one sit down, like maybe maybe you can talk about how you or how often. You might have to go back to these people to follow up to, to be like, oh, maybe there, there's a little nugget here that I probably should have followed up on. Can we expand on that? And, and, you know, how often maybe you circle back to to these key figures in your stories?
1: I do it a lot, especially because sometimes, you know, if especially if it's a sensitive story like this, somebody might be so triggered by recalling a memory that it's, it's like inappropriate to be like, what color was the bed sheet? You know? Yeah, so I think yeah. like, you know, you have to judge if it's appropriate or not in the moment. So I, I do tons of follow-up stuff and fact-checking and I just want to like triple check. Is this really what you said? Do you mean it, do you mean it like this? Or, you know, I think it's sometimes also people don't just don't remember correctly. They mm. might say something you just want to triple check. And they're like, actually, it was this, you know, and so I think that is a huge part of the process. I I really think writing, as weird as it sounds, is the least part of it. The most is reporting and following up and fact checking.
0: And how have you gotten comfortable with, and there's often a lot of discomfort involved, no matter how skilled you are at it, but of, of asking difficult and sensitive questions and going to that well, you know, some people might be really kind of a gun shy to go there, but obviously you got to go there at some point to build the right scene and get the right mood. So, you know, how have you you know, grown in that respect?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be a level of, of trepidation and uncomfortability with that. And I think that's good. Like if you're not, that's weird. You know, this is <laughs> really hard. Yeah. Um, But I think, I've gotten better at it. You know, if you report and write every day for the next 10 years, like you're just bound to become more confident at it. But I'm always nervous. Like, I think the day I stopped being nervous about it, I should probably do something else. And I knew, especially in this story, I had to say, like, did you know, like, did you know he was taking drugs? Like, and, and, and I think it's just so hard every, uh, every single time you ask a pointed question like that. And the seminal uh, quote in that piece about nobody put a gun to his head, like, yeah, that came from me being like, you know, how do you reconcile the fact that he clearly took this, but you don't know much about it? And what, how do you reconcile those things? You know that you can know somebody so well and not know this one part of them and that is a really awful thing to propose you know and and say but i think you're not there to be somebody's friend and i think that's where journalism is in a weird place i think sports media a lot of people want to be friends with the people they cover and social media stars and at the end of the day, like you're a journalist, you got to ask your question. So I think it just progressed from just years of having practiced doing that. And
0: that that part that's one thing I especially pulled out about him not having a gun to his, his head because that's how you end the piece, and it just hits you very unexpectedly that you know it, mm-hmm. it it you can feel the the anger and the judgment and the blame that the that the that Deborah the mother is just like you know in that moment, she's just like angry with her, with her son for doing that. And, uh, it's at at one point, at what point in the reporting did that come out? And when did you know that that was going to be your hammer?
1: You know, uh, that came out like midway through the interviewing process, but I actually didn't know that that was the hammer for a while that I had a different ending, uh, originally. And my editor, was like I think the hand I think originally it was like second to last section and then he was like what do you think about making it the last section and I was nervous about it but it made sense because like this is never going to be okay like this is this is never going to be okay and I think I think ending it that way is real life you know it's there's a tendency to tie a bow on things in sports writing. And, you know, so and so was such a wonderful person, even like, yeah, I'm sure you've read articles where they're like, so and so is a great athlete, but an even better person. And, um, you know, just stuff like that, just really corny stuff like that. And I think this is a situation where it's like, it does a disservice to the story to pretend like it's okay. Like there's gonna be, I don't want to be a person that just writes happy stories. Like, Life is really tough, and this is a tough part of society. I mean, today we're interviewing. I feel like I just saw a headline in the New York Times about like 30% more overdoses from fentanyl this year or something like that. So some some article about the rise in overdoses today. So anyway, this is a long-winded way winded way of saying like the hammer is there because that is representation of real life.
0: Mm. And once you've filled up your notebook, you've got your, you've got your recordings and maybe you've even gone through the transcribing process or maybe you go through Otter like I do to uh, transcribe and then go and clean it up. Uh, but once you, once you get all that information, what's your, what is your next step when you're starting to curate and try to organize this information?
1: I mean, I make a list. I say, what are my best images? And by images, I mean anecdotes, details, stories. And I just kind of go through my material and I write those down. And then I say, and it's good too, because if you don't have a lot, you're like, oh, I need to do more reporting. Like clearly there's not enough scenes in here and, you know, a feature lives or dies on the scenes it has. And then I say, and then I write down, what is this story really about? So it's, you know, Tyler Skaggs is not just a story about a person that died. It's about who was he when he lived. And it's a story about regret. It's a story about loss. It's a story about, really, it's a story about confusion. It's about uh, being unable to reconcile your current situation. So once I know what it's really about, I can kind of take that list of scenes and images and try to put them into a, a loose structure that makes sense to me. And So then I move them into this structure and then I, I start writing and, you know, oftentimes the structure I pick doesn't work. And I end up moving a million things around like twister. And so it's just, it, you know, it takes, I'm a, I'm a slow writer. It just takes a very, very, very long time for me to write. I sometimes, oftentimes actually start in the middle. I never start writing from the top. I hate the lead. The lead is the scariest thing ever. If somebody doesn't like it, they're going to stop. So I leave that to the end. Too much pressure. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I just I start from the middle and then I go down, or I start from the middle and I go up. That's uh,
0: that's great. Uh, when I spoke to Susan Orlean a few weeks ago, she's very big on getting the lead right, and then it cascades from there. So it's, it's so mm. it's really great to hear you know your input that you that you kind of save it, save it for the end. And I almost like saving it for the end because you can almost plant uh, some clues in the lead of all the stuff that you've written already. Uh, But I I get the other way too of like, let's try to really crank on the lead and then everything should pour out from there. But it's it's so great to see that dichotomy.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point about like the clues. I love, I love a good bread breadcrumb but I think um <laughs> I think does anybody else call them that except for me I don't know but I <laughs> oh
0: absolutely gold <laughs> coins or breadcrumbs absolutely
1: yeah yeah no and I like it too because like you have to know what the story is really about in order to do the lead like I and sometimes you you don't know fully until you write the story and I think it's the the lead is like orienting us into what it's really about right so it's like you it's hard to know that on first swing. I mean that, but I mean, Susan is Susan, like she's amazing and I can see how it happens, you know, like that for her, but Oh my God, it's, I won't even touch the lead. Oh God. I hate just thinking about the lead. just stresses me out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now now you said that you're a a slow writer. So, you know, what is it about the, the writing of a long feature of this nature that, um, has the gears turning turning a little bit turning a little bit slow like what's the nature of that slow writing I guess
1: because my structures are never linear or simple I go in and out of time at random places like for emotional effect you know we might dip down to fourth grade and then come back up Uh, there's a there's a really boring mode of writing out there that I think is like the third section is like dip down how he got into the sport, dip back up to you know, whatever. And I, I just like unconventional structures and I like playing with time and like that, that gets very complicated. You know, should this anecdote go here or should it go there? Does it have more emotional impact there? Does it hit you more here? What is the effect of it there? You know, for me every single sentence has a purpose and, you know, I, I wanna have these moments that hit you and it's hard to you know, the, like the one in um, the Tyler Skaggs one, I forgot what it was, but I think the fiance was like walking home or something and she like thinks he's there and it's like by her ankle. I don't know. There was something about ankles and that took me like hours to just sit there and get that image right because half the time I overwrite and I want to make it sound pretty and it sounds bad. And so you have to just keep editing it down and fixing it and you know so it's just it takes forever
0: I'm 100% guilty of of overwriting and trying to sound either too funny or too clever sometimes or just getting overly descriptive and I totally hear you and a note I made was I kind of really appreciate the you have very simple sentences you write in a lot of short sentences and mm-hmm. And uh, that strikes me as since you recognize the overwriting as as a as something that you struggle with, the simple sentences must be a way that you're you're course correcting and getting back to what it really matters in these pieces, which is let the story speak for itself.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely it. And I also think it's just the way I naturally hear it in my head, like just short and choppy and rhythm. I, I like to be rhythmic, too. I think the short choppy sentences do like a nice rhythm to it Um, but also just I was just like breaking convention like when I realized you could have one word sentences I was like oh my god you know like (laughs) all the stuff they teach you is wrong you know I'm allowed to do that you know and I think it just it took some time to to start doing that but I do like getting to the point but yeah I nobody I try to tell people this all the time like a lot of writing that you do just isn't good. Like you have to stop yourself from your weaknesses, you know? So you just have to be aware of, of your shortcomings. And I'm super aware of mine.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, that's so great to hear. And I think what a lot of people have a problem with too, is not being comfortable enough to sit with enough bad writing for it to have the chance to become good. It, we have yeah right cuz we have like an image in our head of like oh this is what it per- this is what the the perfect ideal sounds like and then you start drafting and you're like oh my god this is garbage <laughs> and you just yeah. you, you just want to stop and then maybe the only thing that keeps us going is like deadlines cuz it's like well i got to turn in something uh, but exactly yeah so it's uh it's it's one of those things where yeah you just have to get comfortable with the bad writing that stems from your weaknesses, but you just got to know through the rewriting process that, you know, your your strength is going to be to tone down that overwriting and write more simple sentences, which doesn't mean juvenile, but it's simple, it's lean, and it, it allows the story to come through.
1: Right, yeah. I think the best sentences carry the most weight when they're the most simple. And, you know, I can think of, like, my favorite books. They all do that, like, Toni Morrison' Beloved, I think the first line is 124 was spiteful. It's like, what? You know, like why was, why was it spiteful? What's 124? You know? And it just carries. So you're just like, Oh, I want to go to the next sentence or like, God, I'm trying to think just every book I love begins like that. Like very simple, very interesting. I used to think you had to like be really dramatic in the lead. Like, yeah. Like cannonball. Like the way I think of it is like cannonballing into a, pool and that's like not good like it's more like dip your foot in slowly and invite the reader to come in with you is more the goal but, but in sports writing you know I used to be like really dramatic Like the score was tied blah 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 had the ball he was gonna do this and I'm like oh I just I hate it so I you know thankfully you know I got to grow up and get a bit better than that, but yeah, it doesn't have to be so dramatic. Just simple is the way to go.
0: And so, as you're putting a bow on a story, and you know it's getting ready for that publication time, um, you know what happens? You know, put, you know, post publication when you're when you're rolling rolling it out, you know, do, how do how do you handle that part after you've finished and then it's time to share this with the world?
1: I mean, I feel physically exhausted. Like I, when I turn to a story, I'm like, oh my god. I need a day you know and i because it just it pulls everything out of me i get really nervous the night before you know like what if i you know you just you, you doubt yourself i'm never like wow that story was so good I can't wait for people to see like when people <laughs> <laughs> when people tweet like can't wait for you guys to see what i've got cooking i'm like ew that is so bad you know yeah, what's I'm wrong never with my, you <laughs> i'm like i just don't understand i've never in my life have been like that i'm more like wow, I'm surprised people like this or surprised people read this. You know, I think for me, it's like, I don't really care what people think about. I mean, of course, I want people to respect me as a writer, but I don't, like, I'm just not seeking that. I'm more like, did I get this story correct? And by correct, I don't mean, did I spell all the names correctly? Did I understand this person's soul and what keeps them up at night and what the hell they're dealing with right now? Like, that is a very tall task. And that is my that is my only concern.
0: Well, that that's great. Uh, it, it, that's so great to get your insights into that whole process because it is it is such a uh, a process, and it's only it's only I don't know it's jacked up, turned up to eleven or a hundred when you're dealing with a book. So, like you, of course, you know, wrote this wonderful biography on Giannis that stemmed from a BR Mag piece, I believe. So. So how did you, how did you know that there was, there was book in, in there and, and then getting to the point where you're like, uh, lobbying, lobbying for that kind of access to write an entire, you know, three, 400 page book.
1: Yeah. I had been wanting to do a book for a pretty long time up to that point and just couldn't find, you know, the magical combination of, right idea, human idea, sellable idea, agent that likes me, slash, and the idea, you know, it was like a lot of things had to be in the right. And, you know, I had been talking to an agent for a couple months before this and just couldn't quite find it, but he was so nice. And he was like, if you have any more ideas, let me know. And then when this came out, this story came out, I sent it to him. I was like, you know, could this be it? Like, what do you think? You know, we both agreed that it had so much legs because not only obviously was it sellable and it's a superstar like Giannis, but really nobody really knows much about him. And so that is so fruitful to have a subject where you could be the first, like you could write about things that people don't know about. And his story is so lovely and so uh, universal. And it just so aligned with my purpose as a writer to, to write stories that I hope, you know, dignify a person's struggle and experience. And so, um, yeah, we both thought that this was a really good idea to sink our teeth into.
0: And how much access and how much time did you have with Giannis in particular? Of course, you probably spoke to dozens and dozens of people, but with him as a central figure, how, how much time did you have with him over the course of the reporting for the book?
1: Yeah, well, when I did the story that we just talked about, I spent the day with him and his family, so I had a lot from there that I didn't use for the story because mm. it just didn't – it was supposed to be about his brother, and, of course, it ended up being about both of them. But so I had a, I had a lot left over from that interview. Right when I got the book deal, I – or actually before, I flew to Milwaukee to interview his brothers again. But then COVID hit and uh, his agents wouldn't make him available after that. and I only had one year. So March, 2020 to March, 2021. So, wow. um, yeah, so of course I would have loved more time, but you kind of can't predict something like that. And I had to cancel my trip to Greece as well. So, but luckily, you know, I had the interview with his mom and his brothers and, um, uh, you know, a lot of people close to him and it ended up being 221 interviews total.
0: That's amazing. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of tape. That's a lot. That's the work right there. And to, it's a, it's gotta be what, you know, what a challenge to take whittle, whittle that stuff down into, you know, mining it for the ore that becomes a book. I mean, that must've been an incredible challenge to, to outline and structure a book around so much material.
1: It was so hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think part of the challenge was like so much happens in childhood, but like you can't start the NBA years on page 300. So it was (laughs) like, I know I'm going chronologically, but like you can't have everything. So I, I, it was, I wrote five different versions of this book and it's, I don't know. I think there's no right version. It's just you run out of time and it's due. And the one that we went with is the one that we went with. <laughs>
0: right. I, I love the the, the, the scene that you, that is very, you know, pretty much right in the beginning of the book of them moving this refrigerator to another mm. apartment. And it, you, you just get a sense of they're quite literally like moving, you know, or he's got like the weight of, you know, the family is carrying the weight of each other, you know, down the road. It's like so symbolic, but you don't like You just lay it out there. You don't hit us over the head with the meaning of that. It just feels, it feels as heavy as you lay it out.
1: I mean, you know, my weaknesses, I got to keep myself in check. I can't be like (laughs) the weight of the world is on this young man's shoulders and he's carrying it even as a, you know, like I know what I suck at. And I, I, I really, (laughs) you got three, you know, you you've got 400 pages, girl, like you don't need to, you don't need to tell us on page one. It's so funny though, cause you know, my aversion to leads, but I knew that was going to be my lead when I interview when I got that anecdote that day. So I was at, uh, the Lakers, uh, practice facility or the G league practice facility after interviewing post us. And he told me that and I was like, yeah, that's the lead. It hit me in a way that I just, I've never been hit before by an anecdote i knew it was because i think it also there was so much joy they were like giggling as they wield this thing you know and i think that's the story right it's like it's not just this epic struggle there was so much joy in it as well and craftiness and and togetherness
0: now they the the family is you know nigerian and and greek and you have At the start of the book, the Nigerian and Greek Proverbs, the Nigerian one is however far the stream flows, it never forgets its source. And then the Greek is like one minute of patience, 10 years of peace. When did those, you know, strike you and hit your ear and you're like, oh, wow, this is going to be the perfect way to really symbolize the, the struggle of this family?
1: I think that was way late in the game, actually, like probably a couple months before it was due. I always knew I wanted, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to have two different Proverbs, one Nigerian, one Greek, because I knew that that was a central tension, not even a tension in the book, but just like a central thing that he's grappling with. Just identity is huge. And there's these two ginormous parts to him and people really only focus on the Greek part of him. So I knew from the jump, I wanted readers to know, no, this is a book about both of them. Like this is this is not just the Greek freak. This is, there's going to be as much about Nigeria. And so um, it took me a while to find the right one. I knew the messages I wanted to convey. There's a whole lot more Nigerian proverbs than there are Greek proverbs. Let me tell you that. Um, (laughs) So I I had to find the right one. But, you know, as a lover of of literature, I I live for the epigraph. I, I just love what people choose and just things that like you would never think of when somebody pulls out a poem from the 1600s as their, you know, I'm just, I just, I'm such a nerd. So I was like, this has to be perfect.
0: I love it. And there's a, there's a part in the book too, where, you know, when Giannis is being scouted and a lot of, a lot of GMs are trying to say like, Oh yeah, we all saw the potential there. But the fact is like, it's, it's still a diamond in the rough thing. And, uh, but you wrote that it took several weeks of coaxing to get Danny Ferry who was with Atlanta? Is, I don't know if he's still with Atlanta, but he's at Atlanta at the time uh, to talk about uh, Giannis uh, about the draft for, for this book. So, you know, what was that process like to get him to speak openly? Because he was on the Giannis bandwagon and wanted to draft him uh, you know, as much as the Bucks did.
1: Yeah, I was really stressing because I was like this is you have a list of people you need and there's people that you're like absolutely need 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 red marker need and Danny <laughs> was on on that list. And we played bone tag for like forever and then finally I got to interview him off the record and I was filled with so much joy and so much dread because I was like well this could be it like I can't do anything with this. Um and then <laughs> convincing him to go on the record it is a that's what I'm saying like a lot of this is persistence there there are people so much more talented than me like writers that are just so good but like the one thing I can control is my effort and I will not give up and I will call I have no shame about asking and trying and please and I just want to hear you out and you know what sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but it, it did work in this case and it genuinely was hard for him to talk. He, it's, it really still upsets him, and you could understand why. I mean, the Hawks would be champions by now. Ooh.
0: yeah. And getting to that, the making making those calls and that persistence. Like, I have tremendous anxiety when it comes to making cold calls, even for people that I know. Like, I've to just give you an example. Like, uh, several years ago, I wrote. Uh, a book, and one of my central figures was Calvin Burrell, this Kentucky Derby winning jockey, and um, I want to write another feature about him, because he's in his 50s, and he's still riding horses, but like on shitty tracks. Like, here's a guy who's won the Derby three times, rode the horse of the year in Rachel Alexandra in 2009, and he's on like, a real backwoods tracks, like he's t- a total fall from grace, and he has that, almost that uh, old boxer Storyline where I just feel like he's gonna probably just die on the racetrack someday, like he'll fall and he'll, like that'll be it. And he, I know this guy, and yet I still have like this anxiety to call him and be like, "Hey, you know, I'd like to touch base. I, you know, I might there might be something here to, you know, a feature for the next, you know, for what what you've been up to the last ten years." And uh, so maybe like with with you, how do you handle you know the getting on the phone and, and dealing dealing? dealing with that if it is something in fact you deal with
1: yeah I, I mean all the time I'm thinking Pamela um what's her name Koloff oh, yeah yeah Pamela Koloff tweeted like last week I've done this for 20 years and I still shake or something when I have to call and I retweeted it because I was like Pamela yes oh my gosh normalize it 100% um, yep it, it, I I, I feel that way all the time all the time but I think it's just you have to I know this sounds like really ridiculous, but I'm like, what can they do? Like, especially through the phone, like they can't come kill me. Like, I... <laughs> What's going to happen? The worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to be like, you suck. I don't want to talk to you. And you know, that's happened. So I don't, I just try to remind myself, like, honestly, the stakes are, the stakes are high, but they're low. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's, I just steal myself, you know, and, um, Sometimes also people people have all kinds of reasons why they don't want to talk to you. And it might not have anything to do with the project, the book. It could be just flat out self-consciousness. Like I don't want to, like I'm nervous. So I, I just have enormous compassion for whatever reason they don't want to talk to me. And I think that allows me to see us less as like me versus you. You need, you know, I need you. It's more just like, I'm going to give it a go. No doesn't always mean no, it just means not right now, and we'll see later. That's that's my mentality.
0: Sliding in here for a classic aside, when I was taking notes on this episode before I spoke to Mirren, I wanted to make note and ask her about the chapter headings of her Giannis biography. It's all, the entire book is one word, chapter heads. And I forgot to ask her during the conversation. And as I'm editing this podcast, I was just tweeting out that, I'm like, this is going to be a gem. Like, this is just, what a treat to be speaking with Mirren. This is just going to be such a treat for the listeners. And then I DM'd her on Twitter, and I was just like, hey, you know, I, you know, I was kicking myself. I forgot to ask you about the one-word titles. And she offered to send a voice memo to me, recorded herself, sends it to me to answer that question because that was so important to her. And so very on the forefront of her mind, this idea of one word titles. So basically that's the question I would pose if she was standing in front of me. So what was the importance of one word titles throughout this book?
2: So I wanted to name each of the chapters one word because it really helped my process to try to distill what each chapter was going to be about. When I normally do my long form stories, that's the question I always ask myself before I even start writing. I say, what is this story really about? Right. It's not just a profile of a superstar who's about to enter the draft, or it's not just a profile about somebody who won MVP. It's like, it's a story about fame and grief or, you know, internet stardom or childhood. Like there's, there's all these themes that are part of it. And so when I was doing the book, essentially a book is like 15 long forms in one. So I had to ask myself that exact question for each chapter. And I found that naming each chapter one word helped me really concretize what each one was going to be about. And it also helped me think very clearly about the multiple meanings that I wanted to convey in each chapter. So for example, hunger is not just about literal hunger, it's about desire and just enormous determination to succeed. The last chapter home is not just about a physical home um, and architecture. It's about belonging and finding a space that, you know, where you feel accepted. So that's sort of the reasoning behind why I wanted to do one word chapter titles.
0: There's a moment in the, in the book where, you know, Giannis is in, in the NBA and, you know, he's starting to, starting to become a star and his, and his younger brother Alex is there watching him practice and, and Giannis he he says like this is this is how hard work uh, th- this is how hard you need to work like this and he's showing him like this is the effort you need to put in and that's so incredible incredible and important this idea of rigor and what it looks like and what it takes to succeed at a very high level so in this game you're performing at a very high level you know so what does rigor and hard work look like to you in the way that Giannis was pointing out to Alex.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mean like in terms of the writing game and stuff?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, Like 221 interviews is like really, and it's not like a 10 minute interview. It's like hours with people and and using a translator and being tired and doubting yourself and the rigor is like i'm dead but i'm gonna call one more person the rigor is like god this draft sucks but i'm gonna give it another hour you know the rigor is all right danny you you know you turned me down 10 times i'm coming back for the 11th one respectfully i got a job to do like the rigor is is like i'm gonna be the most relentless hard-working reporter i can be the writing is not always going to be good the 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 you know, there, I have shortcomings, but I am going to damn sure, make sure that I work my hardest. Um, and I think, you know, the rigor is also just never feeling complacent. Like I think people, a lot of my friends are like, why are you so intense about this? Like it's, you're fine. Like you've made it, like everything's good. I'm like, do you know how it works? I could be gone tomorrow. You know, like it's, it's very (laughs) like, you know, okay, so I wrote this book, but what happens the day after you get the bestseller? Like, you're just you're just a person in the world. Like, you got to keep working, you got to keep moving. So, to me, the rigor is like, yeah, but what's next? Okay, that story. Okay, but what's next? You know, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm already like, what 2022 is like tomorrow. What what do we got on slate? You know. So I think the rigor. That's, that's actually why I really loved working on this project. I respect Giannis' work ethic. I respect his stubbornness. I respect his, uh, you know, just utter lack of complacency. I I struggle with perfectionism in the way that I think he does. I love that no matter what he accomplishes, he always works like it's about to all be taken away. And I, I think I'm the same way.
0: Well, that must have that's like a little grace note through the final third of the book, too, that, you know, what if we all went to sleep and woke up and we were back where we started? Right.
1: right. That's my favorite. That's my favorite quote in the whole the whole book, because even when he's at Chick-fil-A, he says something like, what if I got to hold the trophy? Because what if it's gone tomorrow? Or I don't know what he said. And he was joking. Right. But from working on this project, I'm like, oh, not really a joke, you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it really just echoes what, what you're saying too. Cause you know, the, the book comes out, it definitely gets that nice, that nice boost that, you know, they win the title and so you're putting the finishing touches on this book and they win the championship and it's just like, Oh my God, you're going to get that juice from it. But still there's, there's that thing like, yeah, but what about 2022? What, what next? I got, I have to keep this going.
1: (laughs) Right. No, I know. I'm already like, well, what is book number two? Like, I, I'm ready to roll. You know, I spent the last like two months trying to come up with book number two. And it's but today. I had a, I had a, um, a talk with one of my mentors, like, but what about this idea? Is that better than that idea? You know, like I'm already, I'm past the honest world. Like I'm, I'm ready. I want to do like 10 books or something crazy. I'm, I'm like ready to roll. You know, I, I'm, when you work so hard on a book or a story, like, like I do, you put your whole mind, body, heart, soul into it. When it's over, it's over, you know, like you're ready for the next.
0: And and to that, to that point of having so many, maybe so many straws to choose from, but I, I love this, this scene that you recreate from, from the honest book when he, when, Kobe Bryant was giving him advice and he says, you always got to be a kid. And, Mm -hmm. and what great advice to approach things with fantasy, creativity, always asking questions and asking why, 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 you know, and that gets to the crux of what it, the animating force of what it means to be an artist and a writer of these kinds of stories. So is that kind of the approach that you're taking as you're looking to take those next steps in your feature writing? And of course your book writing.
1: Yeah, wow, I love that question so much. It's so true. Totally. I I am a person that's very curious and I think constantly about things like that. Like, well, why did he go there? What happened there? And I just there's so much stuff to find out, you know? And like that's why I love books. You could we could both start right now and try to read every single book in the universe. We'd never finish in our lifetimes. You know, there's just, there's too much good stuff out there. Like I, am just obsessed with finding out more and curiosity is really, I learned that actually when I was at the orange County register, I was writing about like a 50 year old man that, uh, his life goal was to attend every MLB, uh, park. And he's like, lives in this modest home in Yorba Linda out here and you know I was at his house and it had been like an hour of asking about all his memories from the different ballparks And he's like you probably have somewhere to be like it's like it's okay to leave but you won't hurt my feelings and I was like dude what are you talking about this is so fun like I want to hear more and he was like really surprised that I was so curious about his life yeah and I don't know after that point I was just like damn I am really curious like I really I really do want to know. And I think curiosity is, it colors everything. You know, it's, it's your willingness to say, no, I'll say seven more hours to talk about random ballparks of, of baseball stadiums. Okay. You know, and I, I love that.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I wonder too, it, 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 seems like you're just, you know, you're really as much as you've done, you're like, you're just getting warmed up and there's so many, you're just champing at the bit to tell so many great stories in sports, right? Long, longer stuff, more ambitious stuff. So like, what is your relationship at this point in your career to ambition? And maybe how does that compare to what it was a few years ago? You know, that that's always something that kind of changes around us.
1: I have so much ambition. It hurts. Like I, <laughs> that has always been me, but it's changed and that my ambitions have changed. I mean, I used to want to, I don't know why I was obsessed with this. Like this idea of like, I want to be the best ever. And it's like, that is so dumb. Like, what does that mean? Right? Like (laughs) the best of what? Who, who decides that? Is there a, is there a sports writing authority that's going to make that clear? You know, like, I don't know, like that's not a worthy goal. So my ambition completely changed. Now my ambition is like, I want to tell the most interesting, fascinating stories of athletes and stuff that they go through on a human level. And, I have the confidence now to pitch, like, the big stories, you know? Like, I've been after Naomi Osaka for two years. Like, I have no idea if that'll ever happen, but damn sure I'm going to try. Luka Doncic, maybe even longer than two years. I want to profile Masai uh, at the Raptors. You know, like, I, I am ready to tackle big stories. And now I just need a little bit of luck and people. To, to give me some time out of their day.
0: <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Well, well, Miran, I want to be mindful of your time. I we this was such a fun conversation to get uh, get into the bones of what it is to go about this kind of work. So, uh, you know, if if people aren't already familiar with with you, uh, where can they find you online? Get more familiar with your work.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I love nerding out on process. And this was just one of the coolest interviews I've had in a really long time. So thank you. Um, yeah, people could just find me on Twitter um, with my nerdy writing clothes. there. It's just mirin Fader. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time on my website, uh, mirinfader.com where you can find all of my
0: Well, here's the acknowledgements section of this book. Thanks to Mirren Fader. Um, oh my God, unbelievable! How great was Mirren? We didn't get into some of the origin story stuff that I typically dig into because I really wanted to do an autopsy on that Skaggs piece, and uh, so that that's what that was about. That was awesome. That was really cool. It was a lot of a lot of fun. I hope you got a lot out of that. I know I did. I want to dedicate this episode to Kim H Cross. You know what? This just hit me right this very second. You know how books have a dedication? I think I'm going to start dedicating each podcast to someone. I mean, why not? Priority is going to go to the Patreon crew. So so as long as you sign up for at least tier 1, you're, uh, you're, you'll eventually have a podcast dedicated to you oh that's brilliant i like that i'm gonna do it if you want an episode dedicated to you become a patron. Uh, become a patreon let's let's do this let's let's do this right become a patron at patreon.com cnf pod shop around transcripts coaching editing you can ask questions of guests there's a lot of a lot of cool things you can do and also you have the knowledge that you're supporting the community. So those dollar bills go into the pockets of writers to make the audio magazine possible. Uh, regarding Mirren, you can follow her on Twitter, at Mirren Fader. It's uh, M-I-R-I-N-F-A-D-E-R, and she's com. You can see lots of her clips, her body of work. This past week, I was lacking in focus and motivation. Not sure why, but... Pfft. Got to stay on brand. I shook out the mothballs on this reported essay about making maple syrup in upstate New York, harvesting stat and making syrup. Mary's things I really like, like science, brotherhood, and pancakes. So it was fun to dust it off. And right off the bat, right off the bat, I started reading. It. I could just see the veins bulging in this piece's forehead. It was like it was going to burst. It's like the piece was trying to deadlift 500 pounds. It was in danger of herniating a disc. It's been fun to comb through it and kindly take out all those elements of trying too hard. I had a real like howler of a line in there, too. And it was all the more funny because I just took out all the bullshit around it. And so like, I'm really just trying to sit back in the pocket and let the play unfold. Instead of panicking, I think it's got potential. I have no idea where it's going to go, but whatever. Last time I looked at it was in 2017, and the experience of the piece of essentially the 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 hardcore immersion reporting I think might have been 2013. So you're like a lot of distance there. Yeah, you know, I shadow and took part in this family and how they harvest sap in their uh, maple grove or sugar bush. Uh, Great experience overall. It's awesome stuff. I have no idea what to do with the piece, but it's been it's been good to go over it and tell it to breathe and like yo, cool, catch your breath, man. Be cool, be cool. It's all gonna be okay. You've been on the bench for a few years, and now it's time to put you back in the batting cages so we can work on a few things. You know, you come to this podcast for a Grab bag of mixed sports metaphors. Well, that's gotta be it, right? Well, one thing I do know, CNFers if you can do interview, see ya!